All right. Well, this morning, uh, we are going to be continuing on with our Advent series here. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open uh, to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, our Advent series has been uh, getting us ready for the, for the coming of Jesus, for his birth. And throughout this series, we have been looking at all of these encounters that actually happen after the birth of Jesus. We're, we're looking at everyone who sort of interacts with Jesus as, as a young boy, as a child, uh, and looking at how that, that works through. So we looked at the shepherds, uh, we looked at Simeon last week, and, and this week, uh, we're looking at a fairly well-known uh, story. It is the wise men coming to see Jesus. But as much as it's sort of a well-known story, it's also one of them that's really very often misunderstood in a lot of details. Right? I say it's well-known. We even have, uh, we have a song about it, right? We Three Kings. We Three Kings from Orient are. Almost every word in that is wrong, Right? They weren't actually kings, there probably wasn't three of them, and they weren't actually from the Orient in the same way that we think about it, all right? In fact, you know, we, we have, we'll set up little nativity sets, right? Maybe you have one in your house right now, right? Beautiful little scene, you have a nice barn, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus all in the middle, and above there are angels and a star and shepherds and three kings, wise men coming in, bringing their gifts, Right? And I, I hate to, to almost burst the bubble of that, but, but that's not how it looked. That's not the scene that happened at Christmas. In fact, you know, if, you, if you wanted to be you know, very accurate in how you would portray it, you, you could have Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, but you have to almost put them in a cave. Right? The, the stable they were born in probably would have looked more like a, like a cave kind of setting in part of a mountain. That's where, that's where Jesus was actually born. And the shepherds and the angels, well, they were outside of town. So if you're going to set it up, you can have Jesus on the mantelpiece, but then way over on the other side is, is angels and the shepherds. And, and the wise men, first of all, you got to get a few more of them because your set probably only came with three. So grab another couple wise men and put them in the garage because it will be about two years until the wise men show up, right? It's going to take them a long time to actually get there. Now, now look, I, I'm, not, I'm not hating on nativity sets if you have It's great. They're there are beautiful summaries of everything that happens over Christmas, but we have to realize that they're not always accurate to what the Bible describes. And in fact, I, I, I point that out really because what the Bible describes is so much more beautiful. Actually, the story the Bible has of these wise men coming is far more beautiful than three kings who happen to show up with some good gifts for baby Jesus. Right? They, they weren't kings, but they were there to announce the king. They were there to actually proclaim that a king had been born. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd like us to actually read through the story of the wise men coming to Jesus. Matthew uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So we're going to read through this passage together and actually understand what does the Bible say for us. So uh, I'll invite you to follow along with me as well. If you are able, let me invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is what God's Word says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Amen. Well, this, this week we're changing gears a little bit from where we have been going up until now. We, for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke, looking at how Luke walks us through this sort of birth narrative and everything that happens afterwards. Today, we're, we're shifting gears and we're now in Matthew, and we're going to look at how Matthew presents this, uh, presents this account, and, and they very much take a different view. Luke is very much intentionally showing us the, the, the lowly estate that, that Jesus is born in. He's born in a stable, and he is announced, his birth is announced by shepherds, these sort of outcasts from, from regular society. And so Luke is, is very much showing us how, how, in one sense, low Jesus comes. He's born into this world, not into a palace, but into this lowly state. Matthew is going to take a little bit of a different view. His view, it doesn't, he's not saying he, Jesus wasn't born in a stable. Absolutely he was. But his point behind it is Jesus should have actually been born in a palace. G Matthew is very much going to look at Jesus as a king who is coming. That's the story that Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to even see that the kingship of Jesus is going to challenge Herod, the king at the time. And so what we're going to do this morning as we walk through this passage, I want to see, first of all, well, how does Herod react to this news, that a new king is coming? But then I want us to see the faith of these wise men. They rejoice and they worship Jesus. The response to Jesus the king is one of joy and worship. So let's walk through this passage and let's try and unfold, make sure we're understanding what is happening. And really, we're starting out with this, this main point that, that Matthew is trying to get across to us. It's Jesus the King. Jesus is the King. Verse 1, he, he gives us background. What, what's going on at the time? It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the King, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. So we're introduced to these wise men that, that show up. And as we said earlier, they're, they're not kings, all right? The, the word there Matt, uh, Matthew uses is magi, all right? Sometimes it's, it's talked about as wise men, advisors, astrologers, magicians. There's all kinds of, of terms that are kind of used around this, but, but they're not quite royalty, and we're left a little bit to wonder, where did these guys come from? We're not told, you know, where, they, where exactly they come from or how they even knew this. 
But, but I think there's a pretty good guess that we can have when it comes to the book of Daniel. If you can remember all the way back in the Old Testament, the story about Daniel. Daniel worked for the king in Babylon, right? And, and one day, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had this dream, and he had no idea what it meant. So what did he do? He went and he called all the wise men, magi, to come and interpret his dream. None of them could do it, so Daniel gets called in. He interprets the dream. And in fact, Daniel becomes well-known in that system. He becomes one of these advisors to the king, eventually to the king of Persia as well, right? And, and most likely, here's now, this is, this is me kind of making a bit of an educated guess as to where these magi come from. Most likely, they've inherited a little bit of what Daniel taught to them. Daniel would have taught them about, you know, the Old Testament, the promises God had made of a coming king who would one day rule, even told them about there's a prophecy that a star is going to be in the sky. And so these, these magi, now 400 years after Daniel, have kept pieces of that. And as they are looking into the sky, they see this star and they go to, be, to, to Israel to try and find where is this new king. They knew little bits and pieces about what to expect, but, but they clearly don't know everything because they show up in the wrong city, right? They, they show up in Jerusalem and, and they go to talk to Herod. Now, we might not know a lot about where the Magi come from. We know a lot about Herod. We know exactly who this guy is. He is a well-known historical figure. This is, he's called Herod the Great, right? If you go to Israel today, you can see all the things that he built. They're still standing, many of them. Right? He, he was an incredible architect, ruler, governor. He was uh, a, a ruler under the Roman Empire. He's called a king, and, and very often you know, he acted like a king. He was called a king, uh, even in just historical writings. But he was well-known. He was a good ruler in many ways. He brought peace to the area where there really hadn't been peace for a long time. There were famines. He was able to, to help them go through, and they were able to you know, survive all of this. He was well-liked in many ways, but he was also incredibly paranoid. He was paranoid, as, as most people who end up getting lots of power are, he was paranoid about losing his power, and his paranoia led him into all manner of, well, cruelty, to the point where, where he actually had his own wife and at least two of his sons executed because he was worried they were taking power away from him. He was a paranoid man about anyone who would challenge his rule. And so into his office, as it were, march a bunch of foreigners showing up and saying, hi, we would like to see the new king. And you can just imagine what on earth is going through his mind. Verse two in our text says, where is he who has been born King of the Jews, for, when, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, right? One of the most paranoid men in the world is now visited by foreign dignitaries who have arrived to worship a new king. You almost have to give him credit for not losing it on the spot, right? And just freaking out. He plays it cool, right? He's, he's got he's to work a little bit to understand what's happening, but verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I love the way that Matthew, he, he writes this in. He doesn't just say Herod was troubled. Herod the king 
was troubled. He's almost rubbing it in just, just a little bit to emphasize the point. These guys have shown up to worship the new king, not you, Herod, who calls himself king. And we get a little bit of foreshadowing is what's going to happen, right? Next week, we'll continue this story. We're going to see why all of Jerusalem is troubled at this news. But Herod is no fool. Verse 4, we read, he says, Assembling all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, I, I know lots of people think that Christ is Jesus' last name, Okay. It's not actually his last name. No, it's, it's a title. It means Messiah. It, it is this, this long-anticipated king all throughout the Old Testament. We, we see these prophecies of one day a, a new king will come. He'll sit on the throne of David in Israel in Jerusalem, where Herod is currently sitting. And this Messiah shall, shall reign not just over all of Israel, but over all the earth. And so Herod is starting to, well, get a little bit worried about this new king who is supposedly going to usurp his throne. And so he, he tries to figure out, okay, where is this guy supposed to be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." The chief priests and the scribes are, are quoting to Herod here from, from Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 is this prophecy about when God is going to bring this Messiah, in fact, where he's going to be born, Bethlehem. Here, we, we have the answer right in front of us. It's David's hometown. If this is going to be you know, the, the new King David, the one who takes over his throne, he's going to be from his line. And so this new king is born in the same hometown. He will be a ruler over his people. And here's really the, the crux of this whole passage. It's this contrast between the, the new king, Jesus, who is going to sit on the throne, and Herod, who is currently on that throne, desperately trying to cling to power. And so Matthew's whole point here is, well, Jesus is this long-waited-for king. Yes, Jesus was born in a lowly state, but he's also the one who will sit on that throne, right? In one sense, it's only amazing that he was born in a stable because he should have been in the palace, He's the rightful king of Israel, the son of David. In fact, if you go back right to the beginning of the book of Matthew, you can see there, right, chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew's whole point, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is going to try and show that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, the son of David, and the imposter on the throne shall not stay there forever. See, whenever the real king shows up, you either side with him or you try and rebel and stand against him. Herod, in one sense, chooses his place right away. He's going to try and oppose this new king the truth is, you can't really be neutral when someone shows up and says, I am the king. That's not something you can say, well, it doesn't affect me. No, it does affect all of us. If Jesus is the king, not only over Israel, but over the entire world, that means he's our king. And in fact, it means we have to make a decision. What are we going to do with Jesus? 
how are we going to respond? How do we react to this claim that Jesus is born king over all things? He was born that we actually might follow after him. And so just like Herod, we actually have to decide, how do we respond to Jesus? There were a lot of people who ended up rejecting him. If you follow the story of everything that goes on in Jesus' life, lots of people reject Jesus. They don't want him as their king to the point where eventually he is executed. He's put on a cross and he's put to death. And what is the offense he commits? Matthew chapter 27 verse 37 says, And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. At his birth, he was declared the king, and at his death, they wrote the same thing. Here is Jesus, the king. In one sense, you really just can't be neutral about that. You either follow or you reject him. Herod clearly chooses to reject him, to try and cling to his own power, but the question is before us. See, a lot of us like to think of ourselves, well, well I don't have to answer to anyone. I'm my own person. I I can do what I want. I can choose what I want. In, In many ways, we actually have far more in common with Herod than we might like to assume. We can get paranoid. Someone's going to try and take control of my life. Someone's going to tell me what to do. Absolutely not. And actually, we begin to reject Jesus as king. That's why I said we actually have to come to a decision. What are we going to do with Jesus? All of us like to to be in control of ourselves and and, and there's a natural push away to say, no, I, I don't have to listen to what you say and yet here is the question before us. How are we going to respond to King Jesus? Like I said, Herod tries to resist him but as we're gonna see next week, really no matter how hard he tries, he can't do anything. Verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right? Herod is lying. <laughs> he's not interested in worshiping him at all. He, he's trying to play them. At this point now, Herod knows where the child is. He knows approximately how old the child is. And as if he can get these guys to go and find exactly where this child is, he can win the day. In fact, he'll probably have him executed just on the spot. Herod rejects Jesus as king, but the question is still before us. How will we respond to Jesus? Because there is actually another option in this text. It's the one the wise men take. It's the option to actually rejoice and to worship him. In fact, that's exactly what we see them doing in our text. The first thing they do as they begin to work towards Jesus is celebrate, right? Rejoicing in God's faithfulness. See, if we're going to understand this next little section here, what what the wise men end up doing, we really have to, to put ourselves a little bit in their shoes, These guys have come from a long way away, right? We're going to speculate probably at least from Persia. They have to cross an entire desert to get there. It's a long trip. It takes them a long time. There's a group of them. You have to prepare. You have to get ready. You have to actually have to do it all on the basis of faith. 
They saw a star and they knew something of what the Bible said. That star means something for us, that a king is going to be born. And they set out on that basis, simply on the basis that the word of God might be true, that they might find something at the end of it. You can imagine how difficult that would have been. I'm sure many people just simply said, no, we're not coming on that. That's a fool's errand. It's a long journey to go on simply trusting in faith that you're going to find something. And then they show up in Jerusalem and they say, hi, we're here to see the king. And everyone looks around and says, who are you talking about? We saw his star. What star? Right? They, they show up and no one has any idea what they're talking about. Finally, Herod gives them some kind of direction. And so they keep going on this journey, hoping to find this king. Verse 9 says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them it came, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that last verse. They rejoiced when they saw the star. But, but they didn't just rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly. And not only did they exceedingly rejoice, but they exceedingly rejoiced with joy. And not even any joy, but, but they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right? Do, do you get the point? They were happy. They were excited. This was a celebration. But what I find so bizarre about this passage is they haven't seen Jesus yet. All they're seeing at this point is the star. They rejoiced when they saw the star. And you wonder, why on earth are they rejoicing over a star? And I think the reason is exactly this. They have been walking on faith that what, the, what they've heard of the Bible is true. And now they see it in front of them. Yes, it's here. They're rejoicing because what they realize at that moment is the Bible is true. The things that it's promised are actually coming true. It's in front of them. They can see it. And so they rejoice and they celebrate. Why? Because the word of God can actually be trusted. See, I think so often, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around uh, the church for a long time, we lose that amazement. We lose that, that sense of, of wonder and rejoicing because we're almost used to the fact that, yeah, all these promises do come true. We pray for things, and God actually listens and answers and hears our prayers, and we almost seem to shrug it off as if it's no big deal. That the promises God has given to us actually hold weight. God is faithful to them. And so here's what I want us to see. If these wise men can be so elated, celebrate so much, rejoice so much over one small promise coming true, how much more do we have to rejoice? We have so many of the promises. In fact, Jesus himself is an answer to so many promises God has given to us. This Messiah King has come. But that's not even all that Jesus came to do, is it? In fact, the Messiah King was to come and bring salvation, a blessing for the entire world. The good news of why Jesus is here is actually so that we would be, uh, that our sins would be forgiven, that our relationship with God would be restored, that actually we could dwell with him forever. 
See, the whole point of Christmas is that in Jesus, God is fulfilling all of these promises that he has made. He sent Jesus to be this true king, the true king who would restore our broken relationship with God, that the sins we have committed, the wrong things we've done, the hurt that we have caused would actually be forgiven fully and completely, not just swept under the rug, not just sort of buried down deep in God's heart. And we just hope that, you know, we don't hit that limit to where God's no longer going to listen to us anymore. No, actually the forgiveness we're talking about is because Jesus dealt with it entirely, all the way. Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't a mistake. In fact, it was his plan so that he would pay that penalty for our sins so that anyone who would trust in him would be saved. So that actually in Jesus, we have a new promise. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that is a promise God is faithful to keep. That if we confess our sins before him, he will forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all of the things that we have done. That is something we rejoice over at Christmas. God keeps his promise. How much more do we have to rejoice over? Christmas is a call. Rejoice, celebrate, because God is faithful. The reason we kneel before King Jesus isn't because he came to crush us under his rule. It's actually because he was crushed in our place. He didn't come to destroy, he came to destroy sin that we might live forever with him. See, the reason we, we really can't be neutral about Jesus is because we either trust in his promises or we don't. The reason that we hand over the, the throne of our lives to him is because he has redeemed us, he has saved us, and he has cleansed us from all our sins. God is faithful to his promises. And we have so much to rejoice over. But then that leads us really to the final thing that these wise men do. And that is they worship Jesus. They rejoice over seeing God's faithfulness and then they finally actually go to see Jesus himself. Verse 11 says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Right, this must have been an incredible scene. Imagine being, being Mary and Joseph. And these strangers are now walking into your house. Right? People from who knows where, far out east, coming in and they want to see your child. And they want to bow down and worship your toddler. Right? In fact, even to make this even stranger, you have to remember, these are Gentiles walking into a Jewish home. At this time, the, the Gentiles and the Jewish people, they had no mixing whatsoever. They tried to stay away as much as they possibly could. And now you have these foreign men walking in and bowing down before Jesus, just learning to walk and talk. And you think, what is happening here? And then they start to bring out all of these gifts Gold, frankincense, myrrh. 
right? Three extremely expensive gifts, right? Frankincense was an incense that was burned, right? It was a very sweet-smelling thing. Uh, myrrh was used in spices and perfumes. Gold, of course, is always expensive, right? And oftentimes people have tried to find, hey, is there, is there some meaning behind these gifts, right? Gold, maybe that represents royalty. Frankincense being some sort of sacrificial thing. And, and myrrh, you know, was used for embalming sometimes. Perhaps they're talking about Jesus, his, his sacrifice and his death. Matthew simply groups them all together. Really to show the grandeur of the gifts. His point is for us to see how how much they gave. See, in our culture, when we give someone a gift, for the most part, we're not attaching that much meaning behind it, right? Really what we mean is, I was thinking about you, and and here's something that I think, I hope you might actually like. We're not usually making too much of a statement uh, about the person. In fact, I, I hope we're not, for the most part. But in the ancient Near East, really, gift giving was... It was a statement of how you thought about the other person, right? It was how the giver thought of the receiver. And so the point of these gifts is actually to show the supreme value of Jesus. See, the reason so often these wise men are thought of as kings is because they gave such kingly gifts, But that isn't meant to reflect on them. It's meant to reflect what they thought of Jesus. They were giving kingly gifts because Jesus was a king, right? And in fact, he, uh, Jesus was the king who deserved all they had and deserved to be worshipped above all and by all. Right? We've just been walking through the book of Acts for the last number of months, and we've seen this over and over again as, as the, the, the new church is trying to figure out what do we do with the Gentiles coming into the church. We've looked at this whole discussion. But actually, we see right here at the very beginning when Jesus is born, he is worshipped by people all over the world. It's meant to be a signpost of what is to come both in the church and one day before the throne room in heaven when all the nations, all peoples, all tribes and tongues will gather before God's throne and worship him. It's this foreshadowing of what it's going to look like one day as we lay down all that we have in worship to Jesus. And see, that is our calling in this text. We are called to come before Jesus, rejoice over God's faithfulness, and lay our lives down in worship and thankfulness. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us, uh, let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our worship to Jesus is one of thankfulness, gratefulness to our king that we have an eternal kingdom to be a part of. It's not something we have to do in order to, to be right with God or anything like that. It is because we have been saved, we respond now in worship and thankfulness and gratefulness for all that he has done. It is, it's a heart response to our king. So how, how do we actually do that? Well, it doesn't mean we need to buy gold, frankincense, or myrrh. We don't have to travel to Bethlehem. We worship Jesus with our entire lives. Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual 
worship. Paul says here, you are to present your bodies as spiritual worship. Again, figurative, not literal, right? He's saying, what do we do? We give everything we have. Our whole lives is given over to Jesus to show what we really think of our King Jesus. We worship him in how we live our lives, how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, how we, how we treat our spouse, our children. All is done in worship to reflect how we think of Jesus, how we talk to other people, how we share the good news of Jesus. All reflects what we think of our king, how we think of our savior. It includes how we even fight against our own sin. Paul says, you know, our worship is to be holy and acceptable by God's standards. So even as we fight against sin in our own lives, it is part of our worship. It's how we honor King Jesus. We follow his lead, follow his rule in our lives. In fact, it doesn't mean we give less than the wise men. It means we give far, far more. We give everything we have to serve King Jesus. God has blessed us so richly, and so we are called then to return and bless others to show what Jesus has done. All right, the response to Jesus, our King, is worship. Right? We demonstrate how we think of Jesus and how we live and how we follow his leadership. So the response to King Jesus is joy and it is worship. But then it means we go back to the question we began with. How will we respond to King Jesus this Christmas? We can respond like Herod. We can reject and try and say, no, I get to be king. I get to lead my own life. It's, it's my decision. It's my life. I'm independent. But the problem is there's something we just can't do ourselves. We can't deal with the sin in our lives. And so at some point we have to say, Jesus is the only way I can be saved. All of us need to be forgiven. All of us have fallen short. The only question is whether we will trust Jesus, that Jesus can forgive us or not. Will we surrender to his rule in our lives and rejoice and worship him? Oh, I pray that would be our response that our response to Jesus would be one of joy and of worship because we have been forgiven of our sins and we respond in gratefulness, gratefulness and praise to our God. Let us celebrate the salvation we have in him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so, so thankful. Lord, that you have sent Jesus to accomplish what we could not do ourselves that our sins are forgiven. They're dealt with fully, finally, and completely. Father, I pray, would we surrender over to your leadership in our lives? Lord, would we not trust in what we are able to accomplish, but would we wholly and fully trust in you for all of these things? Lord, I thank you for the coming of Jesus, that you entered into our world, and that you entered in to be a king, a king who would be crushed on our behalf who would take the penalty for our sins that we might live. Father, I pray, would we trust more and more in the promises found in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen.